This is Called by the Gospel. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I'm joined by Pastor Evan Gagline, voices you recognize from Table Talk Radio, but we're going to try something a little bit different here. We're going to listen to stories of people coming to the clarity of law and gospel and the Lutheran Church and talk about them. Uh, Evan, how are you? I'm good. I'm anxious to hear who we got, uh, whose story we have to listen to today. I interviewed Pastor Matt Richard, and he told me of his story of discovering the gospel and the clarity of law and gospel, and and I'll play that for you now. Well, my name is uh, Pastor Matt Richard, and I'm from Gwinter, North Dakota, and uh, my journey into Lutheranism has been one of twists and turns. Growing up uh, in the Lutheran Church, being baptized in the old ALC, I found myself going through uh, different movements, different theologies from evangelicalism to pietism to the church growth movement to the emergent church, uh, left, right, up and down. And I finally came to the point where all these theologies came collapsing down upon me. And then after that, what emerged was confessional Lutheranism. And that was uh, quite a journey in of itself. Now there's a summary. Now this is a really uh, important thing, to I think, to consider is that um, for Pastor Richard, and his story is a little bit different because he, he wasn't saying, well, I was I grew up in the Baptist church, and then I went to the Catholic church, and then I was over here in the charismatic church. He was in the church, the Lutheran church, the Lutheran church of the, of the brethren. But his theology moved through a, a bunch of different theological trends, and we heard a lot of them in his introduction, what he called movements, and I think that's right. He talked about evangelicalism, and this would be your kind of standard uh, American uh, doctrine and theology, what we call the American Evangelical Church, uh, Bible churches, Southern Baptist churches, and whatnot. He mentions pietism, which means that his main concern was obedience to the law and growth in good works more than over an, uh, saying the doctrine is right. He mentioned the, the church growth movement, which is to say the idea that we, through our own um, efforts, kind of through a, a combination of our works and our understanding of sociology, can grow the church. And then the last thing he talked about was the emergent church, which was a movement in the church to try to get back to this authentic um, Christ follower kind of thing. Uh, it was a trend in the church uh, probably through the 90s and, and early 2000s. And he went through all—now, while he was in the same church— he went through all of these theological phases. What do you think about that? That's quite a uh, quite a path, quite a, quite a journey to to understand um, understand the truth. Now, I think it's an interesting thing. I mean, just right here at the beginning is to notice that um, that you can be in a church, but your theology can be disconnected or skew from the theology of that own church. So you can be a you could be a Catholic going to a Baptist church. You could be a Reformed person going to a Lutheran church. In other words, the shape that your theology is taking is not necessarily the same thing uh, that your church teaches. And that's something that's, I think, kind of particularly interesting for us to listen to uh, as Pastor Richards uh, tells his story. Exactly. Next question is this. I ask him, what is your first theological memory? And here's what he says. 
So I remember one, for some reason it sticks out, when I was four or five years old, uh, struggling with sin, uh, being made aware of my sin, and uh, visiting with my mother. And uh, in talking about that, it was kind of the first time where I realized, hey, I really blew it, and now what? And uh, remember my mom sharing with me the simplicity of the gospel, that I'm forgiven, that I'm baptized, that I'm claimed in Jesus. And I remember the joy of knowing that Jesus forgives me, and he has forgiven me, and he loves me, and that I'm cleansed in him. And that was a very simplistic message that was given to me when I was four or five, I think. It was right around that that time. Um, And believe it or not, that's the message that I've actually kind of returned to throughout all these years of my life, coming back to that simplistic message of the gospel that I had when I was four to five years old. How about that? What what I love about that clip is that um, his first memory of the gospel comes from mom. And uh, this is where we should... Uh, we should praise mothers for being good mothers <laughs> and uh, teaching their kids about Jesus and the forgiveness that he brings, that that, that children, even at four or five, uh, can know the terror of God and so also need the, the wonderful uh, message of the gospel. I t- he told the story uh, a number of times, that same story. In fact, he comes up to it a, a number of times in the interview, and it's, he remembers the light coming in through the window and his mom holding him in his lap and and simply saying Jesus loved you that's why he died to forgive your sins mm. and uh and and Matt understood it and this probably will come up if we if we hit the right audio clips but he it, that everything that he was tempted towards theologically was a temptation away from that first gospel spoken to him by his mom hmm so as as he will talk about his various journeys even as a pastor he'll realize that uh, that that's a move away from the gospel that mom told back when he was five years old. What one of the marks, uh, and we were talking about this, and I'll play you a little clip here. But one of the marks of becoming a Pietist is the holy rite of the CD burning. Now I don't know if you, if this ever happened to you, Evan, but I remember, I remember that point when I matured. It was in high school, and you reach that point of Christian maturity where you become convinced that listening to the Beatles is leading to demon possession or whatever. And so you go and you burn all your secular music. And so I asked Matt if that happened to him. Here's here's what he says. Not only did I do that, but as I was a youth leader later on uh, in college, I had my youth group. We had a huge, huge fire pit, and we're <laughs> chucking Britney Spears in there, laughing, and they're burning and melting. And so, yeah, we certainly did that. So not only did I do that myself, but you know, we purged ourselves as a youth group uh, when I was in college, when I was leading a group myself as well. So, yeah, good stuff. <laughs> How about that? Oh no, that's now, now the, <laughs> the Christian joy over the melting Britney Spears CD. <laughs> now, could you could you talk about that theologically? I mean, what what um what goes through our mind in this kind of stage of you called it Pietism that says we need to cleanse ourselves of anything secular? It's um yeah uh there, there's probably a lot theologically. Um, but the I, for the pietist, remember your growth in good works is more important than your orthodoxy, etc. You, your your assurance of being a Christian comes um, through your kind of continuance in good works. You become you are becoming more and more pure, and so um, your Christian life now becomes a matter of uh, of purification. You're, you got to purify yourself from from all uh, evil influences. And that, and that's true. I mean, we, you don't want to say that that's all bad, but the the way that it works in Pietism is it's not just 
evil influences and it's not just sin but it's anything that's not christian mm. anything that's not godly so, and, and music is where this thing really um kind of the rubber hits the road because now you have to be listening to christian music uh secular music is going to be kind of leading you down the dark path hmm. uh matt matt in fact talks a lot about uh, uh music in his um uh, in his thing, and one of the big moves was going to these uh, Christian concerts, uh, and and how they turn from concerts into worship, uh, and they're always offering the altar calls. So here's something he says about that. Um, but I think the main thing was at the Christian music concerts. You know, they'd have, um, you know, sometimes they'd have the the altar calls, and to be really moved in that uh, experiential worship. Uh, many times, like, the artists would just say, now we're done performing for you. Now let's just have worship together. And we'd all put our hands up, and we would worship together and be moved by the Spirit, supposedly, and, and um, you know, we'd really be wooed into this uh, euphoric bliss. And then you'd leave the concert, and you'd be depressed because you'd have to go back home and go back to school away from this euphoric uh, time of blissfulness. Wait, so so that sounds like he's talking about um, worship as almost being an escape from reality. This is fascinating to me. Yeah, no, no, it it, it is. Uh, you you go to the concert, but the concert turns into worship, and worship is this spiritual experience, and it stands in direct contrast to your normal life. You see? Well, it, it stands. I, oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, it's okay. Um, it stands. I mean, it stands that direct contrast of of an understanding that what God is doing in a church service is bringing uh, his gifts to us where we are. I mean, this is the whole idea of the incarnation in the first place. That God, It's not that God's uh, calling us to ascend to him in some spiritual fashion, that he comes down to us and he does that even in the, in the worship service through his word and through his sacraments. Right. And this is why we're always talking about mysticism, you and I, because the the opposite of this understanding that the Lord comes to us is that we ascend to him. And that's really what the move of the uh, of the worship uh, leader is. You're trying to get those people who are not Christian to make a decision for Christ, the altar call. And you're trying to um, to get those people who are Christians to have this experience of the presence of God to somehow ascend to where, where God is and, and experience directly his presence. Um, now, all of this. I think theologically is the result of that you don't have the sacraments. So what happens is that these things come in to replace the sacraments and you're, you're having, you're looking for assurance inside yourself. And, um, uh, and, and Matt talks about that here as well. So here, here he talks about it, uh, this assurance and where he was trying to find it. Well, I think simplest, you know, simplistically stated, um, I was always looking inward. Uh, now that seems, that seems just crazy to think, but I'm always, I was always looking inward to my own emotions, my own heart, my own thoughts. And I would always try to gauge if I was a Christian on the basis of how much God was working on, on adjusting my heart. And so if my heart and my thoughts and my mind were very Christianized and I was doing Christian things and I was thinking Christian thoughts, Inwardly speaking, then, because as I looked inward, I would realize that, hey, you're a Christian. But then as soon as the old Adam, which I didn't understand, you know, myself as a sinner and saint, but as soon as that old Adam would... <clears throat> now, just, I'm just going to pause it there. That he mentioned this language of sinner and saint. And this is important that as Christians, we understand that we still have the flesh uh, that is 
you, you know, sinful, uh, and it's always sinning. But we also have the, the the spirit, which is warring against the flesh, and these two things are are fighting against each other. Uh, but um, uh, but here, Pastor Richard is is making the point that um, he didn't understand this conflict, so he was looking into this conflict to try to find assurance in the victory. Whereas the Christian can find assurance in the conflict. Do you, see, do you see what I mean? Yeah. So if I'm sitting here repenting and fighting against my flesh, I, I find some sort of comfort that, to, to know that I'm a Christian. But for the, for the evangelical, to, to see that conflict is to despair. You, you, you see? I need to move so, beyond the conflict. And if I'm, if I'm still in conflict, I'm not victorious or something. That's, that's right. That's right. Here, I'll, I'll let him finish here. As soon as that old Adam would uh, come forth and start wreaking havoc on what I had built up, you know, start tumbling down my own works righteousness, then I would uh, be insecure. And I wasn't able to look outside of myself for the hope of the gospel. I was always looking internally. And so then I would have to resort to me trying to do better or trying to suppress uh, that sinful thoughts or pretend like they don't even exist. And so uh, it was almost a sense where, you know, you have this dual nature where, where you know, my sinfulness is over here, but I don't want to think about it or talk about it because I don't know what to do with it. Because if I address that as true, then I may not be a Christian. And so it, it delves a person into hypocrisy. Really, it does. And so for my... Oh, go ahead. No, 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 please. So so for myself, you know, it was always looking internally speaking, never having enough assurance because the old Adam, the sinful nature would always creep in. And so then it was always beating down the sinful nature and trying to exalt uh, the good, pious thoughts and goodness. And the way that I would do that was by basically trying to keep bad things out and only letting good things in and not realizing that it was deep down in my own caverns of my heart. That's where sin was coming forth. That's amazing. Hmm. That is just amazing. What do you think about that? Wait, I mean, it, it's I think um, probably a, a turning point in his um, theological understanding to, to realize what the work of the old Adam uh actually is um what what the old that the old adam is is continually present and it, it just the fact of the existence of the old adam the sinful flesh is not a denial of the promise that god has made him i mean i think that's probably what he's working at here yeah, yeah that's exactly right but you see if you don't if if your christian life is growth and good works that's pietism then what do you do with the, with your sinful flesh you have to you, you have to pretend at least like it's defeated Right. Mm-hmm. And he says that that leads to hypocrisy and despair. I mean, that is the pendulum of pride and despair that we're on when we don't realize how profound our sin is. Now, you could you could also go the other way and say that I've got no sin or that I'm only sin. I mean, both are really doctrines of despair. But to sit there and say that, no, no, I, I'm uh, uh, there's nothing good that dwells in me. And yet I belong to Christ. And it's not me, but the but my flesh and, and the whole Romans seven fight puts this in contact and if you don't have that then then the only way you can go is pride or despair and and so i asked uh matt pastor richard i don't know what we should call him in this interview i just go back and forth but i asked pastor richard did you despair of yourself and here's what he here's how he answered that you know believe it or not and 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 this is kind of crazy to even share this but i was able to pull that off all the way from high school even through seminary to a certain extent 
And then it was even into my first call, um, right in 2004. Uh, long story short, I ended up going to a call down in California uh, at uh, Ranch Cucamonga, California. Uh, they put a North Dakota boy down in Southern California. This is when I was a part of the Church of Lutheran Brethren. And I was thrown into a church growth church, and I was basically given the task saying this, uh, our budget is not enough to support you, but you are a rock star seminarian, uh, one of the one of the top of the class, and we expect you to grow this church. And if you grow this church, we'll have enough budget for you, and then you can stay. Um, and so the pressure was on me to be this great uh, pastor, to be this great Billy Graham, and, and grow the church through you know church growth and emergent church principles. And we can get that's a whole other story. But long story short, I came to the end of myself when the budget was falling apart. There was a housing crisis in California in 2006. Um, my marriage was suffering because I, I essentially divorced my wife. I mean, Serenity, my beloved wife, would never leave me. But I, I mentally divorced her and I married the church. And I was putting 60 to 70 hours a week into the church, neglecting my vocation as a husband to my wife, neglecting myself. And it all came tumbling down where I realized that I just couldn't do it. I remember one time, it was one evening in my apartment complex um, that we lived in in California, curled up in the fetal position, weeping and bawling, just confessing, I can't do this. I can't keep this up. I cannot maintain uh, the spiritual uh, endeavor to make it work, um, you know, and to, to, to even uh, hold on to the salvation. So I had a real mixed understanding of the gospel and my works righteousness, and that was collapsing in on me. Uh, that was back 2004, 2005. Wow. So, uh, well, I mean, what, what I wonder about this is if what what i mean what a glorious thing that the lord would bring him through this right um because i'm wondering if if he was never put in this position and saying all right new seminary we don't have money for you but go grow the church if you'd ever come to this realization i mean that's the thing that sort of broke him yeah his his external failures um where, where you it's kind of the thing that's broken is the mask you know the mm-hmm. hypocrisy and now you're forced to see how you know how far does this brokenness go? So if, I, if if I'm failing as a pastor, that must mean that I'm failing as um, as a Christian, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and, and so you 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 come to the end of yourself. Now this is really this is what the Lord is after. Every time we hear the law preached, that we come to the end of ourselves. Uh, but there's these these moments, you know, this, I mean, it kind of reminds me when Peter denies the Lord and Jesus looks at him and, and he runs off weeping this, this time where you, your, your sin slaps you so profoundly in the face that you, you have to sort out what to do with it. You, 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 you where you realize that you can't atone, you can't atone for yourself. You can't. You can't accomplish it. And and here is a pastor now curled up on the floor of his living room, weeping because he because he's now brought to the end of himself. Uh, and um, and 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 there's so there's nothing more. I mean, you just, you, you just got to let go. You let go the rope and God is going to catch you or he's not. Uh, this is really, really stunning. He told me, I said, well, what happened, you know, here? But, I mean, this is a kind of a pivotal point. And he said, well, I heard the scripture text that where Jesus says, I came to save sinners. 
And all of a sudden he realized, well, wait a minute, that means me. <laughs> that, 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 that category of sinner applies to me. The danger of thinking that I'm not a sinner is the danger of, the, of pietism. But that the, that text means that Jesus, in fact, is after me. And, uh, and I asked him where he heard the verse, and so here's how, here's how that went. You know, I, I, there was a, I was at a bookstore, and, you know, I was part of the Christian bookstore industry with my wife, you know, so during college, she was an assistant manager at a Christian bookstore, and so we would always flock to Christian bookstores and, and you know, buy books and buy their CDs and their music and all that, and that was part of our personal piety, and I remember um, in that bookstore, and there was a book on sale for, I don't know, it was a buck ninety-nine, and it was an old Brennan Manning book, uh, he's a former Franciscan priest, and uh, I grabbed it and I started reading. In the very first chapter, he was talking all about Luther. And uh, in, 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 I should know this, but a lot of this was fresh to me. You know, Martin Luther, uh, when the lightning struck uh, and he was crying for mercy for God, and as he came to understand the gospel, uh, you know, his great uh, castle experience where Luther understand, understood the gospel for himself. And as I'm reading that, uh, Brennan actually quoted the uh, verse in the gospel of Matthew that he came for the sick. And then from there, I went right to the scriptures and I just poured over that verse that evening in that apartment. And that's when I'm like, my goodness, this is me. This is for me. This gospel is for me. And I kept on preaching the gospel for everybody else who was sick. And I considered myself to have it somewhat together. But I was always preaching the gospel for everyone else. But I rarely preached it to myself. And to be able to hear it for myself that time is when, uh, man, the lights really came on. <laughs> wow. So, came on. so for... for uh... Um, for Pastor Richard, um, the Christian life before this time was about moving beyond um, the status of uh, of sinner, uh, moving upward. You know, saying that I was that, but I am not that anymore, or at least not that very much. And it sounds like what he came to to realize is that to say that I have moved beyond sinner is to say that I have moved beyond Jesus. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. That, this, this, um, that the gospel is always for me um, is, this, is this discovery that is just so precious. Now, um, one of the dangerous things about this idea that we've set ourselves to of telling people stories, that we think that if we don't have these um, great conversion stories, that we're somehow less of a Christian. But you understand that that, in fact is the problem is it is that when we think that we have something that's so great that takes us out of the need for jesus that is a theological problem and jesus wants us always constantly to live a life of repentance that is to know our own sin and to and to know his gospel and his grace and that's where the lord jesus is graciously bringing pastor richard you know in this in the story and um, and it's also exactly where he wants each of us who who are listening to this thing. Uh, let's see. Next, I, I hear this is great. Uh, one of the things that he he wrestles with is the fact that he's got all these different theologies. So he's got Pietism and emergent church doctrine and church growth stuff and some Lutheran stuff. And it's all kind of together. Um, but he 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 gives a picture of the collapse of his theologies that that each theology kind of had its own bedroom in an apartment, but then all of a sudden they just all come into the living room and start fighting. Here's how, here's how he tells the story. 
Well, you know, like I said, you know, growing up, you know, I was baptized in the old American Lutheran Church and um, kept in my baptism. And my mom, you know, was just simply when I was four or five, she was just communicating the gospel to me. But somewhere from that time until this event happened in Southern California, um, I, I grabbed a hold of all these different theologies. I grabbed a hold of pietism. I grabbed a hold of American evangelicalism. And then in seminary, I actually grabbed a hold of the church growth movement. I had a professor that was teaching that, and that appealed to me um, as a former business guy. And so I grabbed a hold of the church growth movement. I grabbed a hold of the emergent church when I was down in California, that movement. All these theologies, which were all man-centered, I grabbed a hold of them. I was kind of using them, putting them on my uh, utility belt, almost like Batman has all these tools on his utility belt. I had all these different isms, pietism and evangelicalism, church growth uh, techniques and the emergent church. They were all techniques that I was using, that I was using to try to implement and be the pastor that I wanted to be to serve God's church and also to bolster myself up. Well, about that time when I was in that fetal position, <laughs> you know, dead, um, that was a, that was an, a, that was a collapsing of all these isms. I like to use the example of a house and all these, uh, this house, this theological house. I had all of these different, uh, theologies in different rooms in the house. And what had happened is about this time when everything was collapsing, all these theologies, they came out of their rooms into the main uh, living room and they began to fight and they, they just did not mesh together. And so as I was collapsing uh, to my own sin, realizing uh, who I was as a poor, miserable sinner, these theologies were also collapsing with me. They were not, uh, I could not cohesively keep them working together. They were all in too much of a conflict. And so as I broke apart, my theological house fell apart. And then, you know, once that happens, you can't live in a void. You know, you can't, you can't live without a theology. And that's when I started trying to uh, flesh out, uh, you know, Lutheranism, confessional Lutheranism, uh, scraping everything away and getting back uh, to the basics of the, the Christian faith. I'll have to tell Matt that, by the way, it's not an ism. So just, yeah, let him know. So, so... <laughs> So it sounds like um let me see if I if I understand what he's saying so that that he might he might have all these different theologies uh, dancing around in his head which um objectively speaking would be in conflict with one another. Um I don't know what an, an example would be but I, I mean sometimes we'll, we'll talk about and not necessarily to talk about um Pastor Richard but uh generally speaking we'll talk about how people will uh, talk about uh, making a decision for Jesus and not realizing that that is in some way a thing that you're saying saves you, um, and this kind of thing. So, so on one side, people say, oh, I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone, and at the same time saying, I'm saved because I asked Jesus into my heart, and not see a, a conflict in that. But it's when he was sort of um, demolished <laughs> in, uh, in, in seeing that when, when, he, when he was kind of brought low in his situation before God, that's when these theologies could be exposed. That's right. And, and you see, you know, I mean, church growth is, is all about getting the church big, whereas, uh, emergent church is all about the authentic Jesus follower, you know. Uh, the, the, his Lutheran doctrine emphasizes infant baptism, and his American evangelicalism despises it for the altar call. You know, there's all these things that, that just, they, they can't fit. But, but you, if you're proud, if you're, you know, if you're kind of proud enough, you can keep them all separate. But now, as he's breaking down and realizing his own sinfulness, now all of these things can start to actually stand in the conflict that they are already in. And he's looking now for, 
He's looking for a clarity. Now, in, in the meantime, there's a lot of things that are happening, including the move from uh, California to, um, uh, to Williston uh, and a couple of other things. But the thing, the doc, the text that now um, he finds is Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. Uh, these are theses that Luther wrote in 1518. Uh, he had written the, August, the 95 theses in 1517. And so the monks down in Heidelberg said, hey, come give us some theses. And so he wrote these Heidelberg theses. Uh, it's an amazing thing about the history of it. You, you figure Luther would talk about the indulgences, but he doesn't. He's, he's pushing towards law and gospel, and, and he's doing it with the language of the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. And so, uh, so Pastor Richards, here's the Heidelberg disputation, which uh, I'll ask him in a little bit after you hear this first clip. He, he said to me that this, the Heidelberg blew him up. And so I'll let, I'll let him tell those. And it was about that time too that I I stumbled across Luther's Heidelberg disputation. Uh, it's a bunch of theses that Luther wrote and and I started wrestling with that. And that was the instrument that really helped me put all the pieces back together and start, uh, building a Lutheran theology, if you will. He said he, he was blown up by the Heidelberg Disputation. Here's how that goes. Well, Tom Baker, he actually came to speak at one of my good friend's uh, classmate, Pastor Sean Bowman in Jamestown. He spoke at his church on this Heidelberg Disputation, and Sean, he actually taped it, and he gave it to me at some conference, and he said, hey, check this out, brother. And I listened to it, and what Pastor Baker did was he laid out the difference between a theology of glory, which is basically this man-centered theology, all of these different isms that I embraced, pietism, uh, the church growth movement, the emergent church, um, all these different isms that I embraced could be summarized in the theology of glory. And then he contrasted that with the theology of the cross. And what he did is he helped me understand that everything that I was doing was going the way of glory, the theology of glory. And he he, he basically put words to what I had actually experienced, theological words. And so it was like, my goodness. And it was just blowing up everything in the past. Like, that's exactly what I was doing. And then he not only did he expose where I was wrong, but he exposed and shared the theology of the cross. And then he gave me something to cling on to, something to replace that collapsed house of theologies. And then as I held on to that theology of the cross, as he explained it, it then gave me the opportunity to move forward and study that to replace what I had lost. That's, that is an that, uh, he, that Tom Baker and his exposition of the Heidelberg, did you hear what Matt said? He said, it put theological words to mm. what I had experienced. Mm. Yeah. Huh. I'd say so that, that, and, that and the other thing that stuck out to me was that it gave, uh, replaced it with something too. I mean, just, just to tear someone down uh, or, or to, to expose, expose the illness, you know, to, to give a diagnosis without, without the cure. Um, he, needed, he needed that theology of the cross to say, this is now what I can look to. This is now what I can cling to. That's right. That's right. So a theologian of uh, the cross calls a thing what it is. That's the you know that's one of the things that Luther says there in those theses, and um, uh, and uh, and also that there's an alternative. I mean, all, when we hear all these preachings, which is really it's a it's a preaching of the law uh, in in all its different forms without the gospel. Um, that there's that there is another that preaching. There is another word that the Lord has for us. I asked uh, Pastor Richard what his favorite thesis was, and he read. Uh, thesis 26 from the Heidelberg Confession, which is 
which is really where Luther is knocking on the door of law and gospel and about to get in. It, it goes like this. I think uh, Theses 26, I mean, I mean, check this out. Theses 26 says, the law says do this and it is never done. <laughs> and grace says believe in this and everything is already done. I mean, that captures my whole life. I mean, uh, you know, what my mom did for me when I was a little kid there, she gave me the gospel and said, basically believe this. It's all done in Jesus. Uh, but somewhere along the line, you know, I, I, I allowed um, all these different isms to go the way of the law to tell me to do this and do this and do this. And it's not that the law is bad. I mean, we say the law is good. It's wonderful. It's God's will. But when we use the law as a means to salvation by doing this in order to obtain eternal life or do this in order to obtain, um, you know, an identity in, in the Lord, uh, it's never done. And uh, I was always like that, uh, you know, that rat on that wheel, you're running and running and running and running, um, trying to accomplish uh, to reach that pinnacle of that goal until it all came crashing down, realizing that I just simply cannot do it. I can't do it anymore. Um, my goodness, I was a pastor. I was, you know, had got my MDiv. I was ordained. Um, you know, my my wife had been married for several years, had a call, and I realized I just can't do this anymore. And uh, that was my personal collapsing. And thank God. I mean, thank God that my whole uh, rat wheel was demolished and that I was put into that fetal position because then I could hear about the one who did it for me. So, so, let, me, so let, me, let me think about this. That, that the, the, the law says do this and it is never done, but the gospel says it is done already. Is that right? The gospel says, "Believe this, believe and this. everything is accomplished." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wow. So so now in so I mean to, to put I, I don't and I don't think Luther says the gospel there. I think in Heidelberg he says the he, grace says do this. So okay, um, it's getting close. Like I said, I mean, I, I wonder sometimes if we make a little too much out of Heidelberg because it it just Luther's almost at long he's gospel. Still, he's, he's still working on it. Quite there. Yeah, he's still he's but he's right there, and this thesis is the closest to it. And uh, and he's and it's so and it's good. The law says do this, and it's never done. And and so, so uh, Pastor Richard said, this is what I was. That's what I was living. The law, do this, do this, do this. And he realizes not only is it never done, but it it can't be done. So then, what's what's left? If it can't be done, what's left? And the answer is the the gospel, which says believe, believe yeah. this, and everything is accomplished. I mean, those, you, you can see how that gave him the theological vocabulary for his life because. When when uh, he he heard what the gospel is to to believe and is done already, uh, it brought him back to say, "Wait a minute, that that's what mom told me when I was five years old, <laughs> when the sun Isn't was shining amazing? through the window." Yeah, that is amazing to me. Yeah, it all goes back to mom and and the simplicity of the gospel. Believe this, and it's done already. And the whole his whole life, he's running from this, running, running, running. No, no, I can do this, do this, do this, do this, until finally, blam! I can't. I can't. And now it's up to it's all up to the Lord. Now, the theological word for this is monergism. And uh, that means that God alone is the one who saves us. In fact, and, and all the way through, you know, from beginning to end, uh, he, he, he calls us. Uh, he keeps us. He he um, gives us a blessed death. And um, and Pastor Richard talked about in, in, in his language, becoming a monergist. Well, I think I think that 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 moment was when I was in that fetal position, uh, weeping. You know, uh, when I was on that, I remember distinctly being in my living room. Uh, we had this uh, this this rug that I was laying upon, and I just curled and I just wept. 
you know, and, and, and not that I would ever do anything to physically harm myself, but I wish I had died. I just, I mean, I was that depressed. I, I'm like, I just want to go away. Not that I would have done anything to hurt myself or, you know, uh, to go there, but that, that was the depression of just how much the, my own drive and my own works and the law was beating me up that I just couldn't do it. And then when I realized that Jesus did it, uh, it was a, it was a freedom. Uh, it was like, man, I mean, he has done it all for me and I just couldn't get enough of it from that point on. It was just, I wanted to hear more and more and more. It was a switching, as Norman Nagel says, it's a switching of who does the verbs. Um, up to that point, I was always doing the verbs towards the Lord. And at that point, it was a flip of a switch where I realized that I can't do these verbs anymore. I just physically and mentally and emotionally cannot do them. And I was even questioning, like, man, I should just quit being a pastor. And then to hear that gospel from Matthew chapter 9, that he came for the sick, to realize that he's doing those verbs, that's where the switch happened for monergism for myself. Wow. <laughs> this is so great. This is so great. We could, that, that thing that, that Pastor Richard hears, that Jesus has done it, that, 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 Jesus, that the death of Jesus really is for you. Dear sinner, I mean, that uh, is, I mean, that's, by the way, what we want to constantly hear ourselves and we want everybody listening. I mean, everybody in the world to know that, that joy that Christ has died for us. I mean, really and truly that he has died, that his death was a real death for real sinners like me and you and all of us. And that this is, it brings to us a real life, real comfort, real joy. I mean, that is that is just fantastic. You can hear him. You can hear the smile on his face mm. as he thinks about this. I can't get enough of it. Yeah. That Jesus is the one saving me. Just phenomenal. I mean, this is this is sort of a shift from moving from the God of second chances <laughs> to the God of the gospel. That is that it's done. That that uh, that the God of it is finished. <laughs> right. I mean, it, if if God is just here to give us a second chance to to forgive and say, do better. Um, if that's all that that our God uh, gives us, then we just see more failure because my second chance, my third chance, my fourth chance is the same as the first chance. Um, yeah, yeah. But but in, in, in Jesus, it says, uh, it is done. It is finished. And uh, so there is there is no more place for man striving to reach God. It, it's uh, it's uh, already it's already there. That's right. I mean, try the, the gospel is not okay. You can try again. <laughs> oh, right, right, boy. Now there's one more step to take, and that is from monergism to Lutheran doctrine, um, because you can be a monergist and and confess that God has done it all, but there there was still. Um, uh, Pastor Richard talked about that there was still something theologically lacking, uh, and and um, and so and so here's that conversation. Well, I would say you know, kind of shifting out of monergism. Should I hit that? Kind of shifting out of monergism. I kind of see, I see it in two different tiers. I mean, it was step one was, and I don't want to use like steps like in you know getting higher, but but kind of the stage one. Maybe we can say stage one was coming to an understanding of monergism, you know, that Jesus does it all. But then I still found myself, well, that, well, that's good. You know, that's true that Jesus does it all. 
um, I still was lacking in trying to put the pieces together because I was lacking the sacraments, uh, you know, and what I had done is I had created sacraments for myself. And in fact, an old professor from Fort Wayne once said, uh, passed this on from another friend who shared with me, if we don't have the baptism and communion, if we don't have the Lord's sacraments, we'll make up our own. And so uh, as I was actually dismissing the altar calls, dismissing um, all these different sacraments that I had created uh, in my previous systems, I, I didn't have sacraments to replace it. And so then it was coming back to remembering uh, what baptism actually is and understanding the Lord's uh, sacraments for myself, you know, his, his body and blood shed and given for me. And that is really kind of where it took me from, you know, my Lutheran brethren days into colloquizing into the LCMS. Colloquizing is to basically uh, jump ship, <laughs> to shift from one denomination to the other. And so I, I, I began this process of leaving the Lutheran brethren, which have some really wonderful friends in the Lutheran brethren, but coming into the Missouri Senate who has uh, which has a much more of a, a ability and emphasis on the liturgy and the sacraments of baptism and communion. Uh, so it's a shift from monergism to a monergism with a sacramental influence or sacramental understanding of God coming to us in the word and sacraments. Hmm. So is this, is, is that second stage as he, as he called it um, in, in the, uh, I mean, the sacramental stage, is this a, a seeing that uh, that that this is all now delivered? It's not just this theological idea that stands off in the abstract, but it's it's actually given and delivered uh, for you. That's right. That's right. So that so that the the Lord saves us by the gospel. But where do I where do I find the gospel? If it's not inside of me, that well, then where is it? So that you 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 realize that the Lord has to do it all, but wh- how does He do that all? Where does He accomplish it all? And to really to be be a Lutheran is to say the Lord accomplishes it where He promises to accomplish it in baptism, uh, in the Lord's Supper on the altar, in the Word, in the promise, and um, so that you know the, our friends the Calvinists are monergists. They believe that God alone saves uh, and so forth, but they are not sacramental. They do not understand that the Lord delivers the promise of the gospel from outside of ourselves connected to means. And, and that, um, is, th- th- that is always going to kind of push you back to, to, the, to the subjective idea of the gospel and God's grace uh, rather than this objective assurance that we have. Hey, I am called by the gospel. So this is why, I mean, we have a lot of uh, reform friends who have the same critique of, of evangelicalism that we do but the reason that uh, that we're we're uh, we're not one in doctrine with the with the Calvinists is because the Calvinists can't see that God is actually working here and now through the sacraments, through the means of grace, bestowing the very thing that He's accomplished on the cross. That's right, and that subjectivity is going to creep its way all the way back into their doctrine when it comes to election, limited atonement, that Christ only died for a few, and all this sort of stuff. That's the that's their non-sacramental. Um, subjectivity finding its way uh, into the works uh, and even into the mind of God. Hmm. Now I asked one more question, and, and this is uh, this will be great to, to finish it out. Um, and and the question was, if you could go back to each of these eras of your life and answer the question, "What is the gospel?" How would you answer that question? And and here's what he said. 
Yeah, you know, if we start way back with pietism, you know, the gospel was, um, you know, it was about Jesus loves me, so I better prove that to show how much I love him back. Um, so it was about me taking his love and being serious with it to not not forfeit it, not not, you know, stomp on it. So I better better hold on to that love. I better show him my love back. Um, from there, when we looked at the church growth. Uh, so that's pietism. Do you see that? Do you hear? I, I lo- Jesus says, I love you now. Are you going to love me back? Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now the emergent church. The gospel. Or church the growth, gospel I mean. was, you know, basically, here's the gospel. You have it. Now you better get rid of it. Don't hold on to it. Don't cherish it. You better you better grow the church by giving it away. Uh, you'd be selfish if you actually held on to it. Uh, the emergent church, um, that was all about trying to be this hip and cool, authentic, auth- auth- authentic is that a word? Authentic? Authentic. Authentic. Jeez. <laughs> I'm making up words here. Authentic. It's, it's authentic yeah. to make up words. <laughs> <laughs> so authentic. My goodness. Authentic uh, missional life. So now, now where's the church growth? You would get rid of the gospel. In the emergent church, you had to embody it. I mean, think about how fearful that is to embody the gospel, that, that you are a gospel unto others. And so all of these internalize the gospel, whereas in confessional Lutheranism, it's, don't look at me, it's I confess the gospel, look away, you know, behold the Lamb of God who, you know, forgives the sins of the world, being like John the Baptist and pointing away from yourself and pointing to Jesus and look, there he is, there is righteousness, there is the gospel for us, the good news of my salvation is there, Jesus, who is for me. Okay. Great. So I, I love this contrast between, uh, and, and this is in the category of the emergent church of you know being the gospel. So you have a contrast between, um, and I, I, I don't know. I, it's, I think I've heard that it's falsely attributed, but I don't really care. We're talking about the quote, but you know, uh, the people say that Francis of Assisi said, um, you know, preach the gospel and when necessary use words, sort of implying that you should right. just go, you know, well, just what he's saying, be the gospel, and um, and when you realize, boy. Um, people are to learn about um, forgiveness of sins through my actions, my obedience, my ability to love. Lord, have mercy, help us. Um, but uh, he contrasts that to John the Baptist, who who turns who turns people away from himself and says, "I'm not even fit to untie your sandal." <laughs> um, right? Uh, don't look to me. Right. Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's every Christian, every pastor, every church, every theology. That is how it should be. I mean, if we, whenever we're talking about doctrines, this is what the doctrine should do. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And whenever we're talking about preachers and pastors, that's what they, that's what they should do. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's, that is what a, a, a comforted conscience hears echoing through it. I mean, here's my sin constantly. I'm constantly beholding my sin. I'm constantly beholding my 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 failure. I'm constantly beholding um, the 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 hatred and wrath of those around me and and my own wretched heart. And yet, uh, and, and yet, the scriptures say, "Look, here's Jesus who died even for you, even for you." And and the Lord dragged uh, Pastor Richard to that point, and He's dragged us all there. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so God be praised uh, for that, that he brings us to the end of ourselves so that he could give us Christ. Ugh, fantastic. Nice. Is that it? That's what I got for you. Yeah, I, I want to especially say thank you to Pastor, um, Pastor Richard for taking the time 
to tell the story and putting himself out there. I know that um, uh, this is not easy. You know, these things are very personal as we go through them. So I'm, I'm very grateful for him uh, telling the story. I'm most especially most grateful for his mom <laughs> who yeah. told him the gospel when he was a kid. So God be praised uh, for her. And um, and for you, thanks for letting me uh, bring the story to you. Uh, I'd also like to hear from our listeners. Uh, if this is helpful, we might, Evan and I might, you know, give this a shot and try to bring some of these stories of, uh, of people being called by the gospel to you. So if you have thoughts or questions about it, uh, let us know. All right. How do they do that, by the way? I guess they can call our Table Talk Radio stuff. <laughs> PRBW at tabletalkradio.org uh, or our number, uh, 1-888-725-4897. One eight hundred three eight five seven six five two, or if you remember the Is word, that, was soda. I even? I was no, I was close. No, you got wrong. Close? You got the third digit wrong. So one eight hundred. I didn't even. I didn't I, even get the. I, you didn't even get the eight hundred right. Wait, what, I didn't what's even. What's the first three digits was, of our eight hundred number? I was just making up numbers, and I can't believe that I got like four of them right. <laughs> That's great. So this is called by the gospel, and we give thanks in this, Evan. Well, I mean, what's your big takeaway here from this? Um, well, one, one, one comment, I mean, this isn't the main takeaway, but one, one thing that really stuck out to me in this whole story was um, the, 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 the need to sort of be broken standing before God in order to see that our theologies have an inner conflict. That was interesting to me. And then the necessity to have a theological um to have have a theological vocabulary to say what I'm going through before I see this gospel that I was told as a five-year-old. So it's almost like we get dumber as we get older, and uh, we need to become a five-year-old again, which is exactly what Jesus says, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for letting me bring you the story, too. I appreciate that. And thanks for those who are listening. And uh, stay tuned for more Called by the Gospel sometime soon.